This is Carpe Consensus. Join hosts Ben Schiller and Danny Nelson as they seize the world of crypto. Hello and welcome to Carpe Consensus. This is a podcast from the Coindesk Podcast Network and my name is Ben Schiller. I'm the features editor here at Coindesk and joining me today is Danny Nelson. Hi, Danny. Hello, Ben. How are you? I'm okay. It's been a tough week here at Coindesk and we'll explain all about that in a minute. And we should just say that our normal co-host Cam Thompson is not with us today and will not be with us going forward and we'll explain why in a minute. But how are you feeling, Danny? Uh, it's been a tough week for Coindesk so far. We made a series of layoffs recently. And uh, how are you feeling about that? Yeah, it's uh, the crab market, bear market, however you want to call it, takes its toll on everyone, including media companies such as ours. So we had pretty uh, extensive cuts this week and uh, everyone's feeling the pain in the newsroom. Yeah, it's definitely a tough time. Uh, and anyone who's been in the media business for as long as I have uh, has seen a lot of these layoffs before. So it's not totally unexpected. But this is also connected, obviously, to the crypto market, which has been, you know, in a spiral for a, a while now. And we were protected by our parent company for a while, that, but that's gotten into trouble. And uh, we've now gotten into trouble. So it's a tough time. But uh, we're going to soldier on through this, aren't we, Danny? Well, we'll certainly see, right? You know, this is my first job out of college. I've been here for four years. We can say I've levered up in my exposure to risk, right? Media is a <laughs> struggling industry and crypto, the coverage of crypto is, as some might say, a dying fad. So I am in a struggling industry that focuses on a dying fad. So we don't know what's happening in crypto media, but it's not good at the moment. Yeah, so uh, we're, we're not going to sugarcoat this. Uh, it's been a tough week for us and Cam was a casualty in a big round of layoffs here at Coindesk. And we're very sad to see her go. She was a very important member of this podcast and also the, the wider editorial team and a good egg and a good journalist. And we're very sad for her and for us and for the rest of the team. There were about uh, 20 or so members of the editorial team that are unfortunately no longer working with us and through no fault of their own because they all did all good work. So um, that's very sad. We don't want to make the whole show about Coindesk and, and the media, but it is an important part of the crypto industry. And we do play a role here in bringing transparency to the industry and uh, holding people to account for what they say they're going to do and what they don't do. So we do feel that we need to discuss uh, what's been going on at Coindesk recently and, and also in the wider crypto media. Do you feel that there's uh, a loss of faith in what we're doing and in the media generally as regards crypto, Danny? Oh, I don't know about that. I mean, I think that broadly in American society, there's this lack of trust in media institutions. I don't necessarily think that crypto media is prone to the same risks as, say, the New York Times or something like that. But it's worth noting that we are, in some ways, a casualty of our own success. Coindesk was one of the leading publications that led to the dominoes falling on FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried. That had ramifications for the entire industry, including DCG, our parent company, which owned Genesis Lending. And all these chickens come home to roost because even though we are editorially independent from DCG, they do not tell us what to do. They still own us, at least as of August 15th. And therefore, their fate and ours are not unlinked. That's certainly true. And there is a kind of deep irony to... Uh... The success of our reporting with FTX leading to our own demise. Well, demise, Ben. Well, 
demise is maybe overstating it, but our, our own uh, our own problems. Despair, despondence, right? There's a lot of good D words for this one, but we're not we're not quite dead yet. No, we're not quite dead yet. But I guess uh, someone else might have broken the story if it wasn't us. And uh, yeah. FTX was a ticking time bomb anyway. If, better uh, us. Better yeah, us. Better us. Definitely. Yeah. I was interested in your thoughts on a recent op-ed that we published rather aptly at the same time as our own layoffs. And that came from Cami Russo, Camilla Russo. She's a longtime reporter, at least 10-year veteran of the crypto space. Uh, she was at Bloomberg. She then wrote a book, The Infinite Machine, about the founding of Ethereum, the early days of Ethereum. In the last few years, she's been running The Defiant, which is a DeFi-focused specialist publication, which is well-regarded. And she wrote a piece for us recently, which was, you know, I'll read you the title here. So the title is, Crypto's Theater is Becoming More Surreal. And uh, the idea of theater in crypto refers to something like decentralization theater or governance theater or community theater which are all sort of when Web3 or crypto startups put on a show of doing something, uh, for instance, distributing governance to its community when actually the governance is controlled by a small number of actors. That would be one example of theater or decentralization theater. And basically the whole point is that crypto and DeFi in particular has put on a, a show of being innovative and doing something towards uh, decentralization and the community when in, in actual fact, it's uh, not living up to those promises. I was wondering if you might give uh, some comments on that, Danny. Do you think she has a fair point? Uh, is this a fair criticism of crypto in general? I haven't read the piece yet because of uh, my own disobedience, but I will say that I broadly agree with the points that Cammy makes, according to you, like saying that decentralization is more of a buzzword than in actuality, I think that you see that across a DeFi and these governance-focused projects where you have a team of founders, much like those that you would say are founders of a startup. They don't have equity in the protocol. Instead, they have tokens. And the tokens are, they phrase them to be these magical vote mechanisms through which the, a community can control a protocol. Well, how are these tokens distributed? In many more recent airdrops, you see 5% of the supply goes to the community. Okay, well, 5% goes to the community and 95%, which the last I checked is the vast majority of power, stays with the founders and the insiders and the advisors. Well, then power really is centralized. And it's kind of a hooey to say that something's decentralized because decentralization is at the core of crypto. Bitcoin started, and continues to be, I would argue, a mechanism for moving money around the internet in a decentralized manner without anyone being able to tell you, oh, you can't do that because the network just works. In these smaller projects, the network doesn't just work. The levers of power are controlled by individuals, and when they don't want something to happen, they don't even have to vote it down they can just make sure that it never goes to a vote. So it is theatrical, and I do love theater, especially decentralization theater, and I have season tickets for the box at the soap opera. So just to quote Cami here, I think it's worth reading out some of her comments in full, and this is regarding governance tokens. And she says, uh, the truth is that most people are buying governance tokens because they treat them as a proxy for owning a stock in a protocol. Data shows that the vast majority of holders don't care about governance, and very few actually participate in it. They care about making money. 
projects often perpetuate this trend by treating governance tokens as part of their marketing and customer acquisition strategies. This is to say nothing of the obscene concentration of governance tokens by the founding teams and their investors. In democracy, everyone has a voice and a vote. In DeFi, one token equals one vote, which equals plutocracy. So this is coming from an industry veteran, someone who is very well regarded and is the founder of the main specialist media company about DeFi. So it's not some stray person kind of passing a comment here. This is someone with a lot of credibility and she's making a very damning point about DeFi not being decentralized. That's a pretty big deal, isn't it, Danny? It is. It is. It really is. And it says a lot. There's a lot of truth there. I should, I will say, I don't think that there should necessarily be more tokens that are held by the people, right? If you're the founder of, let's say, let's just pick Uniswap. They're big. They've got a very robust governance procedure, but let's pick on them anyway. If you're Uniswap and you created Uniswap and you, uh, it's your thing, why would you want to give power to those people over there who are using the thing? You want to profit from them using the thing, even if the revenue is distributed in any which way. It makes a lot of sense for the people who built a thing and who invested in that thing being built to have power. Then you take that idea, these are my thoughts, then you take that idea, which I think makes sense, and you try to crunch it down and stick it in this can with the word decentralization scrawled in Sharpie on it. Well, it's just one can. You didn't even cut it up and throw it uh, across the room. It doesn't work. There's just a very, there's a fundamental disconnect between this idea that you can, that one as a founder can build something to have a financial stake in and benefit from that financial stake, while also saying, oh, community, whatever that means, you're going to have ownership in this. Why should the community have ownership in it? Is it because they're providing the liquidity through staking or whatever? Mm, maybe. I would say probably not. You can make money other ways by earning fees and things like that. So I just think that there's something fundamentally broken in the way that crypto protocols attempt to uh, pursue decentralization. Right. I mean, it's all a means to get people to participate and pony up their money, isn't it? Oh, I, I would certainly say so, right? Yeah. Like, it's all about money. Money is what drives... What is crypto? Crypto is, according to the house uh, saying, the future of money, right? It, maybe it's the future of governance too, but you can't divorce the two ideas. In a democracy, we are not allowed to buy votes, right? You can't bribe people and say, I, as a candidate, say, I will give you money for this. You can maybe give them cookies and say, this is my name, here's some cookies. But you can't say, this is my name, vote for me and I'll give you a cookie. That is, right. that is a, a electioneering that's fraud. But you can do that in crypto. You can sell ballots. You can buy influence. And I think that that connecting the idea of a voting system with the idea of money means that power will inevitably congeal. Right. So you cover a lot of these projects. You're a big DAO uh, expert and, and critic, Danny. I mean, are there projects out there that you think exemplify these better ideals? I mean, are there some genuinely decentralized projects where governance works in the way that it's uh, said to work? Mm, I don't know, right? It's a lot easier to, to, and a lot more fun to find the things that don't work than the ones that do. So I'll just pick one that doesn't work. The newest one to get liquidated is called Saddle Finance, which was notably venture-backed. They are pursuing this buyback, this token redemption policy, where they take their treasury of, I don't know how much it is, let's just say $10 million, 
$10 million over here, and let's say they have 300 token holders. Well, in theory, maybe you would say, we're going to make one token equal to one portion of the treasury, and the more tokens you have, the more treasury you get. That's pretty simple. So bigger token holders will have more treasury to get. Well, they're saying, we're actually going to do it a little differently. If you staked your token into our voting mechanism, which is to say you at least positioned yourself to be an active participant in voting, then you're going to get four times as many tokens as the people who didn't. Well, you know, okay, maybe that sounds good because you're rewarding those who are actively participating in governance more, but maybe that's also an arbitrary decision that just is going to reward the insiders and those people who are more familiar with the system and who stand to benefit because they already were holding the levers of power. And so these are all decisions that are, in theory, being approved or disproved by a DAO, but who is the one that is posing these questions to a DAO? It's the insiders to begin with. So it's just another example where I see just fundamental issues with applying uh, democratic and decentralized uh, notions to crypto governance. Right. I mean, I guess the question becomes, you know, should we laud these projects for at least trying to be democratic? Or do you think it's worse to say you're democratic and not be democratic? Is that, is that a worse thing than, than the attempt of it? Uh, I think that it is much worse to say that one is one way and to knowingly be another way, right? I mean, in order for, I'm not saying that these things are criminal, but some of them might be. I don't know if these people know that what they're doing is or isn't a crime. And again, I'm not saying that they are committing a crime, but I don't think that they're really having deep thoughts about how governance should work. It's more, what box must we check? And how do we check it in a way that still benefits us as the founders because we did build the thing? Right. But there's no kind of threshold for this, right? I mean, some projects might say we have 15 people voting on, on a governance motion, then that's democracy. But to most of us, that wouldn't be democracy. The beauty and the furious pitfall of decentralization is there is no standard that should be followed where people can say, okay, well, this is how you do the thing, right? Everyone's going to have a different way of doing it. I think that, as far as I can tell, most of the ways of doing it have fundamental issues. And that gets back to that idea of can you combine money with governance? And I'd say probably not. And you see that in American politics too, right? We have dark money that flows through politics. You and I, we can donate to candidates, I don't know, maybe $2,000, $3,000 per cycle. That's a, a maximum. But if we want that candidate to prevail, well, we can give infinite money to a super PAC that is speaking in support of that candidate, but not working directly with that candidate. So there are these loopholes, even in American democracy, where your money can speak a lot louder than it should. And that, that's a level of abstraction that you don't even need to have in crypto because you can just buy influence. And even if you buy influence, it might not matter because the insiders already have the influence. Maybe you and I should uh, form a super PAC, Danny. We can call it Americans for an open internet or something jazzy like that. Yeah, Americans for an open internet. I don't know. Let's do make crypto great again. I think that's, <laughs> that's a lot buzzier. Oh my God. Okay, let's not go there. It's a bit of a depressing show today, Danny, isn't it? It's all a bit of a downer, but uh, sometimes well, it's necessary to take stock, I think. It is. Yeah. 
Let's move on to a new topic, and that is the biggest exchange in the American crypto industry, the biggest public exchange anyway, that's Coinbase. We're going to talk about some recent announcements it's been making and some rather favorable news. Coinbase came out with uh, a new blockchain called Base recently, and it's been rather a success, hasn't it? It has, and I have to say, just another entry in the storied history of crypto projects being really, 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 really uh, uncreative in coming up with names, right? We're Coindesk, there's the block, there's Blockworks, even Coinbase. Oh, what are we going to call our new foundational blockchain? All right, sure, Base is a good name. But anyway, despite its non-creative name, Base has been a bit of a hit, attracting a lot of interest and a lot more money from people who want to experiment on Coinbase's Layer 2, which is, of course, a way of utilizing the Ethereum blockchain's consensus mechanism and security without having to make the sacrifices on speed and throughput that the um, world's biggest DeFi blockchain suffers from. So Coinbase's base opened officially to the public last week, and in the time since, there's been a lot of activity from meme coins and other types of investments that just attract people who really want to make risky bets, which to me is very funny, right? Coinbase is trying to build this permissionless thing, but it also doesn't want to piss off regulators because it has already done that very well, as you can see in the SEC suit. And there's a lot of uh, scammers who are already on base. Ben, what do you think of that? I think uh, it's been lucky with these viral apps. It seems to be a big reason for the take-up of this uh, blockchain. So Coinbase is facing that SEC lawsuit, which is interesting because it's getting a lot of admirers and advocates who say that that case should be dismissed. Uh, Cynthia Lummis, the uh, senator from Wyoming, came out last week to say that the SEC should drop its case. And it's interesting to see how advocates and detractors of the crypto industry are kind of lining up for and against uh, the motion here. Do you see this lawsuit being politicized, Danny? I think that it's probably going to fall prey to the same politicization that I think was going to come for all of crypto, which is to say a retrenchment where the right takes crypto on as this pseudo-libertarian idea of, well, let's control the money, like let's, as individuals, control the money. And Democrats will say more, we need to have safety controls to make sure things don't run amok. I think that those two broad ideals that the two parties have will come for crypto too, which is a shame. I think that crypto should be approached from a more bipartisan point of view, not as something that is inherently a leftist or a rightist technology, although I think we can all agree that Bitcoin is a bit more libertarian than non-libertarian. And yeah, so the, the thing with Coinbase specifically is all about securities law, which is a very important discussion within crypto. I'm not familiar enough to say whether that specifically is becoming a political issue, though. Well, I was just talking generally how, you know, this is becoming a partisan issue. Like, and it was interesting, Will Foxley, former reporter here, expert in mining, was on the show a couple of weeks ago when we were doing Mining Week. And he was talking about how there is this blue state, red state divide in mining. Basically, the, the blue states, the democratic controlled states, are more or less ganging up against mining, while the red states uh, are, are pretty pro-mining. And that has to do with... Uh, you know, attitudes to job creation, it has attitudes to whether Bitcoin and crypto is a legitimate activity to start with, whether it's a good use of energy and the environmental impacts that it has, but also something more tribal. And I think it's interesting 
with the selection cycle that's coming up, the way in which crypto is becoming a part of the messaging of candidates. So, I mean, you have Ron DeSantis, for instance, the Florida governor who's running against Donald Trump in the Republican primary. You know, he has a policy firm against uh, a CBDC, a central bank digital currency or a digital dollar. Even though there is no digital dollar project out there, you know, it's not like the Federal Reserve is actually building a digital dollar. But uh, he feels the need to put out this policy against the digital dollar, uh, not because it's really about the digital dollar, but because he wants to signal something about monetary freedom. And that's a signal to his base that uh, he's pro-freedom. And similarly, you have uh, Elizabeth Warren on the other side, who's forming an anti-crypto army. uh, And you get the feeling similarly that it's not really about anything to do with crypto. It's more about Warren signaling to her supporters that she's against Wall Street or against financial interests or against bros or something. And uh, it's all about this kind of signaling through crypto when it's not really about crypto. Yeah. So I, I would say, you know, both are a bit of hooey. I would personally say that there's more sense to be made in the anti-digital dollar argument just simply for the fact that first it should be said, as you pointed out correctly, Ben, the Federal Reserve is not currently working on a digital dollar. They might be doing some tests or whatever, but there's no actual project. And the reason that there is no project is because Congress hasn't said, do this thing. So unless Congress says, do the thing, they're not going to do the thing. And they've said that many times and Republicans seem not to believe that. But anyway, that aside, I would say that the creation of a digital dollar would at the very least empower the Federal Reserve and the government to have very broad powers over these dollars that we have, right? If I have a dollar in my pocket, the feds can't take it without a warrant. Presumably, they won't be able to do it without a warrant either in a digital dollar scenario, but it's a lot easier to do that uh, if it's online. It's a lot easier to do that. You don't have to, you don't have to send the feds through the chimney like Santa. You can just go boop and, and lock my account. So yeah. that's, that's a, like a big brotherian. Orwellian idea that I think is very easy to get people railing against, whereas just being anti-crypto is a lot more abstract. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And the reason why I kind of bring all this up is because Coinbase, as part of its uh, flurry of announcements recently, has actually formed a new lobbying organization. It's called Stand with Crypto. And the reason I think that's interesting is because uh, there's already a number of official crypto blockchain lobbying groups in Washington, D.C. You know, we have the Blockchain Association, we have the Chamber of Digital Commerce and several others. And I think there's a growing feeling in the crypto community and also in uh, more mainstream finance that these uh, organizations have been ineffective. And you can see that in the complete lack of fresh regulation that we've had regarding crypto or any legislation of any kind to say what the rules of crypto should be. So we've had uh, people there in D.C. apparently representing the industry who've actually achieved nothing in terms of you know, legislation or regulation. So now you have Coinbase coming in and it's facing this big charge from the SEC and it's forming a new organization to fight its own battles, uh, presumably because it doesn't feel that the existing groups are, are doing a very good job. What do you think about that, Danny? Do you think we're seeing a new wave of lobbying in, in D.C.? Is it time for change there? Well, it's funny. I think we can, we've talked about three crypto themes here. We started with decentralization. We can bring it back there, right? Coinbase already is the biggest exchange. Now it has a layer two. And it also wants to command the conversation. It wants to build the platform where people trade the cryptocurrency. And now it wants to be the voice that advocates for cryptocurrency. Those are themes of centralization, which is just risky, right? It's not necessarily a bad thing that Coinbase wants to advocate for crypto. 
but it does introduce more risk because when you have all this power accruing to a single exchange, and this goes back to our original point, when things go wrong, there's a lot of blowback, right? FTX tried to be that voice. FTX was really, really pushing to have a huge lobbying front in DC for crypto. It probably seems like FTX broke the law when in doing so. I don't think Coinbase is going to be as flippant in its approach. I think it's a much more buttoned up company, but it's just another point of failure, which is really dangerous. Yeah. So I think it's interesting. I mean, this phrase, as they often are in political sloganeering, is a little bit slippery, right? Stand with crypto. I mean, what does that mean exactly? Uh, presumably, Coinbase means, you know, stand with our version of crypto, which mm -hmm. is, as you say, Danny, a centralized version of crypto, whereas some other lobbying groups might say stand with crypto in a different meaning, right? If it was TradFi, presumably they have a different stand with crypto than some uh, anarchist uh, DAO somewhere. Yes, in fact, there is, there's one DAO, it's called Cult DAO. I think it literally is an anarchist DAO. But when I tried to learn about them, they had these really weird tokenomics that I just became convinced actually just benefited insiders, just like the others. So uh, not so anarchist. God, that's so sad. This has been a real down of the show. But I, I do sense in DC, and I'm not an expert on this, but uh, it does seem like as the big Wall Street firms move into DC, they're championing a different set of crypto issues than the Binance's of this world, right? TradFi wants stablecoin legislation, it wants legislation on real-world assets, tokenization, and it's not interested so much in these questions of freedom, censorship resistance, these issues that we identify more with Bitcoin than with this kind of larger crypto idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a big battle going on over the future of crypto. Uh, you have to decide whether you stand with Liz Warren's anti-crypto army or in one of the other factions. Critics from the outside will often talk about crypto as being this monolith, but in actual fact, uh, if you spend any time in the industry or any time covering it, you can quickly see that there are many different churches and tribes uh, within it with quite different views of the future. Anyway, thank you, Danny. I think we'll wrap up the show there. And uh, thank you very much for listening, everybody. And again, we're very sorry to lose our colleague, uh, Cam Thompson. And if you could see us now on video, you would see tears in our eyes or something like that. And um, But we'll be back. And thank you very much, Danny. And thank you to our excellent producer, Eleanor Paul. Talk to you next time. Thank you. See ya. Carpe Consensus is a Coindesk production. Executive produced by Jared Schwartz and produced and edited by Eleanor Paul. Have any questions or comments? Email us at podcasts at coindesk.com. Subject line, Carpe Consensus. Thanks for listening and see you next week.